Good morning, brothers and sisters. We are still on our series on the book of Joshua. Do you still remember the episode from last week? What happened in the last chapter? Last week, Pastor Jared preached to us from Joshua chapter 4, where the Israelites made their battle preparations. It wasn't a preparation that was full of sharpening their swords or readying their muscles working out. Instead, it was a preparation of faith. They made memorial stones led by God that served as reminders to strengthen them for the future for the battle of faith as God's people. How about you? Have you taken time to think of the memorial stones in your life with God? Stones that speak of God's work and faithfulness that will strengthen you for the battle ahead and for your offsprings and the legacy that you will pass on in the life of faith? I pray that you do. It will prepare you for the battles, especially for 2023. In today's chapter, Joshua chapter 5, we will discover the spiritual preparations that the Lord led strengthening the people through weakness, making them sufficient independence, and safest when surrendered. Let me invite you to walk down your personal memory lane. Who are the people in your life that look down on you? Maybe when you were a child, maybe when you were weak. Who are the people that made you feel that you were not of any value? Are there people in your past or present that made or make you feel smaller than you'd like? Don't we all wish for those people that we never see them because we are reminded of that perspective that they have of us? Or maybe you've, like me, promised yourself you're going to take matters into your own hands, work your life to the point that you will have something to smack their face with, to prove them wrong, that I am valuable enough, I am strong enough, I am rich enough, I am big enough, I am important enough to say, I told you, you are wrong. The Israelites were in a similar position in this chapter. Sometimes we forget that from the beginning of the Israelite story, they were a traveling people. They were outcasts. They were slaves. They had no identity. They were nomads. They had nothing that they could be proud of. They were homeless. Their enemies taunted them as if they were no one and nothing. Nations around them, their neighbors, viewed them as Israel, the slaves of Egypt. The no-landers, the nobodies, mawalang sariling buhay, mawalang sariling lupa. Walang pera, walang yaman. They have nothing to boast. They are a weak people. However, as we've studied in this book, we have followed them from chapter to chapter. And because of God's promises, because of God's presence, and because of God's power, they now are perceived very, very differently. Their story as a people was taking a significant turn. We pick this up in verse 1 of chapter 5, where it reads, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, 
And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. You see, through what the Lord has done throughout their wilderness journey out of Egypt in the past 40 years, Israel now, Israel now is different. They were not different because of military might or economic prosperity or maybe agricultural wealth. They were now different and now very feared because of the Lord. Because the Lord has so done these things for them. He has confirmed his power. He has showed his presence. And he has affirmed his participation with the nation and the people of Israel. And this is what causes their neighbors to melt before them. Their very names remind them of the power that was with them. The power of the Lord of the heavens and of the earth. You see, these nations were not small nations. These were the Amorites and Canaanites, giants in riches, giants physically, cities with fortifications, armies of their own. Yet at this point of history, in chapter 5, the author was showing us that these strong and economic pros prosperous nations were shuddering, were trembling at the name of Israel. If you were to describe how the Israelites felt at this moment in time in chapter 5, how would you describe and imagine them to be? Your enemies are now trembling before you. The people that used to bully you, spit on you as a people, are now shaking at home just by hearing about you. You are now stronger than they are. If you were one of the Israelites at this time, what would you have felt about yourself? What would you have actually done and prioritized at this point in time? The tides were changing. Probably you would have a sense of pride. Look how far I have come. Maybe a sense of satisfaction. We're finally here. Get ready. Despite the odds, despite your taunts, look at where we are. Maybe a sense of retribution. We're back, baby. We're back with a vengeance. Get ready. With regards to public perception and PR, they were at their highest of ratings ever. If I were their leader at the time, I would probably have prioritized and thought to myself, strike, aggression, capitalize on the momentum. Let us dominate them while they're fearful and paralyzed of our names. However, this is where the chapter becomes very, very interesting. God is truly a different kind of leader, a different kind of story writer. You see, God was more concerned about the formation of the people's hearts than the conquest of their enemies. As we read on, we see God, what God prioritizes for his people in preparation. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. 
And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had already been circumcised, yet all the people who, people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Basketball. People call basketball the game of runs. It's either the team goes on a scoring run or the opposing team does. And it's known that whichever team has the most scoring runs usually wins the game. Scoring runs are built on the momentum of the team. To stop the opposing team's momentum, the coach, opposing coach would usually call a timeout. Just to break the momentum of the game, the rhythm would be off. This is to disrupt the other team's momentum and hopefully break their role, break their run. In the verses that we have just read in Joshua chapter 5, militarily, the Israelites were on a run. They had instilled fear and intimidation in their enemies, in their neighbors. It was their time to go on a scoring run. Not to call a timeout, definitely not a timeout. Militarily, timeouts were a wrong time strategy at this point. But why do we see the Lord calling a timeout at this point? What was the Lord prioritizing? To answer that important question, we must ask another question. Circumcision was a timeout. It crippled you. For those who were circumcised while well, they, they had memory, you know how crippled you are after you are circumcised. You had to wait in your place in the camp until you were healed. You were probably going to school very tender. And at the same time, they were in a battle. Why was God circumcising them and putting them on a timeout mode while they were right in front of their enemies' doorsteps and their enemies were quaking in fear? Why did the Lord see it necessary to circumcise them at this strategic time? Let's rewind a few seasons back in our story and look at Genesis chapter 17 to see what this came from. Genesis 17 says, When Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, 
and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offsprings after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. What the Lord mentions here in Genesis chapter 17 is about him being committed, promising himself to be covenanted to Abraham, and not just Abraham, but his offsprings, and his offsprings, generations, generation, he will be fully committed to them. He declared to Abraham that he will give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and he will be the God of his people. All of what he was saying in Genesis 17 was coming true at this time in Joshua chapter 5, the time of the offsprings in the time of Joshua's generation. And this is where circumcision comes in. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. The emphasis is clear as you read this verse. It's like it's repeating itself. My covenant between me and you, you and my, your offspring, I covenant you myself to you. So circumcision was a sign of this ancient covenant that the Lord had made to their father, Abraham. Yung lolo ng lolo ng lolo, ng lolo ng lolo, ng anak ng lolo ng lolo. Yun, yun ang ginagawa nila dati. It was to remind them in their flesh of a covenant made between the God of the heavens, of the earth, and our people. So it was a tradition. It was a meaningful act, a sign inside of those people, in their flesh, that those who belong to Abraham's line belong to God. And this God had a promise to be fulfilled in the lives of the people. So circumcision was a reminder. It was reminding the people that he was the Lord who was a promise keeper. So at this point in the story, what was God prioritizing? Choosing to command Joshua to circumcise and call a timeout in battle to circumcise all of the males, all of the armies at such an opportune time. And it was right at the doorsteps of their giant enemies. We can see here that the God who is 
their God was calling to their minds, to their attention, that they had become who they were because of his covenant faithfulness to them. From the shamed and the nobodies, slaves of Egypt, he has rolled that identity away. And he has so confirmed that you are where you are. Enemies tremble before you, not because of what you have done, but because of my covenant faithfulness, my promise keeping from generations ago. Yung lolot, 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 lolo mo, yun ang pinramis ko ngayon. Apo, apo ng apo ng apo ng apo, nakikita mo. Hindi ako nakakalimot. I keep my promises to my people. Thus, the fulfillment of the promise depended not on the people's faithfulness. Remember, they were so faithless throughout the generations. They kept on complaining. They kept on being disobedient in the desert, in the wilderness. And yet, they were standing at the doorsteps of a trembling enemy. Why? Because the faithfulness, the fulfillment of the promise was dependent on the faithfulness of their God. So circumcision was a sign of this. As they were doing that, as they were in their weakest moments, bleeding, incapacitated, it would have incited a memory, a reminder that I am most strong. We are strong as a nation. We are who we are today because the, role, the Lord has so fulfilled his promise to us. And so while we are on a time out, we are actually at our strongest because God is with us and God is promise keeper. Despite of us, strongest in weakness, we can see that was what God was about. His priority was not rushing into momentum or wielding strength and, and, and conquering nations. It wasn't really about that first and foremost. His priority was showing him himself as a God who reminds us who he is. He exposes the truth by ritual, by circumcision, that he was a promise-keeping God. He was a faithful God. He was a trustworthy God, and he is until today. He prioritizes worshipful preparation, worshipful remembrance over any battle formation. The people were extremely weak because they were fresh, freshly circumcised, and yet they were strongest because they were protected by the promise-keeping God since generation until today. So, church, we are strongest as God's people, not because we have life's momentum on our side, but because we have God on our side, a God who is faithfully com committed and covenanted to us because we are his people. Let's bring this truth down to our day. How many of us enjoy momentum in life? Most of the time, we'd be unwilling to take a break be still and remember God while we are on a momentum, while we are on a roll. We excuse ourselves, sige, pagtapos ng busy season na to, pagtapos ng peak season ng business na to, I'll go back to church, I'll start spend time with God again. Or I'll go back to my personal devotion after tong business deal na to, I have to be busy lang for a month. Have you heard that from yourself? Reasoning? 
But you see, as we do that, we are failing to prioritize what God prioritizes. In sustaining our strength, we must place ourselves constantly in a posture of seeming weakness, a posture of worship, a posture that would seem foolish to the world's momentums. It's for us, it's important for us as a people to confess, to be in a posture of reminding, incapacitated as we are, that we are strong in life, not because of our momentums, but because God is faithful. Despite our lack of momentum, despite our lack of faithfulness, we remind ourselves that we have a God who is promise keeper and covenant fulfiller. What momentum has 2022 brought you? Or maybe what momentum are you looking forward to in 2023? What heart preparations of worship and confession do you need to do in confessing and reminding yourself that you have a God who is promise keeper? And so when we are weak, he still is strong. We are strongest when we are weak in the Lord. In a way, this is why Christians gather every Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. Casually, we throw that term around. But Sunday worship is designed to be the Lord's. It's designed to reorient our hearts to confessing that it is because of God that we've gotten through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so on and so forth, and we have arrived at another Sunday where we are weak. We refuse to work. We refuse to work on a Sabbath because we are calling a time out. Not because it's good for business, but it's good for our hearts. It's good for our hearts to recall the Lord's faithfulness, that he has again, week after week, generation after generation, Egypt until here in Samar, in Eugenio, he has delivered once again. So that is why we gather. We gather so that as we look around the sea of God's people, singing praises and declaring his truth, beside us. It's a physical sign, a visible sign of God's goodness and sustaining strength for weak people like us. His goodness surrounds us on the Lord's day. We sing songs that the Israelites once did. We read Psalms that King David wrote. We pray prayers that Apostle Paul prayed. Why? Because we belong to that same God that was parting Red Seas, instilling fear in the people of the enemies of the Israelites because he was faithful to them. This same God is faithful to us. And every Sunday, that is the song of our hearts. He is committed to strengthening us because he is covenanted to us. When was the last time you were enamored and amazed and brought into worship because of the Lord's day? I pray that you experience him freshly in these traditions that remind our hearts. We are strongest in weakness. Let's continue with our story to see point number two, how God prepared his people to experience sufficiency independence. Let's go back to our story and pick up in verse 10. 
While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna seized the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Manna was the way the Lord provided and sustained his people throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. In Exodus, we see how God's provision of manna started. His story, background check. Sige, basahin natin. Exodus 16. When, when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Manna was bread that fell seemingly every morning in the wilderness. It was like frost. It's like you're taking something out of your freezer and then there's frost on top of it and it became their bread. It became their daily bread. It was flaky bread that tastes like honey wafers. And every day when they woke up in the wilderness, remember they had no fire, they had no kitchen, they would gather these flakes as sustaining food. It would sustain them for the rest of the 40 years in their journey. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So this is what the author of Exodus was talking about. He was referring to our chapter today in Joshua chapter 5. Finally, the people had arrived in a habitable land. They were no longer in the wilderness. They were at the border of the promised land, at the plains of Jericho. And there... The daily bread, their manna, stopped. No longer did they need it, for they ate of the produce of the land. The land was fertile. The land would produce bread and fruit and meat for them. What was the spiritual significance of this? All those years in the wilderness, it was clear to the people that it was the Lord who was sustaining them, miraculously, with protection, guidance, leadership, and even their daily bread. But now that they were about to enter into the land that was promised to them, the providence of God comes now not from the miraculous flakes falling from the sky every morning, but the produce of the land itself. Manna reminded them that they were nomads, they were homeless, that they were dependent on the miraculous for mere survival. But as they celebrated a feast they had not celebrated in the 40 years in the wilderness, the Passover, it reminds them of God's mercy and grace and how far they have come. The spiritual significance of having a feast finally, after all those years of travel, of homelessness, they were having a feast and at the enemy's doorstep pa. It was a significant celebration because the people were eating and celebrating because God's sustaining grace has brought them here.
from bread to feasting, from flakes to full meals. And that is why we remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord spoke through Moses reminding the people of these things. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man taught the people that they were so, so dependent on God for existence, for their mere survival. It was to instill in them that truth that I am a man who is incapable to sustain my own life, but only God sustains me. But yet, it was a warning that comes directly after this realization. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, forget the one who fed you in the wilderness with manna. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers at, as it is this day. So as they were about to fulfill the promise, they were about to enter and enjoy eating full, building good houses, and living in luxury houses, they were warned not to forget how God is the one who gives them the power to gain these things. It is God's sustaining grace that keeps them flourishing as a people. So the manna in seizing and the feast of the Passover was to elicit two things, remembrance and obedience. First, the Lord wanted them to remember that it is the Lord who fed you and sustained you. To remember that it is the Lord who gives you power to achieve what you have achieved, Israel. To gain what you have gained, the promised land, the people, the children that is around you. To remember that it is the Lord's covenant promise. He is a promise keeper. He is the one who kept you and delivered you and prevented you from being extinct as a people. Why? Why do you need to remember that? So that you can be careful that you will not forget him. To obey him and his commandments so that you may be careful that you will not take for granted the sustenance and the provision of God behind your full stomachs and big houses so that you may be careful that you will not be fooled into thinking that it is by your own power that you attained all of this whatever you're surrounded with today the Passover was meant to teach us that it is not because of who we are that we are here, but because of who God is and how we are dependent on him sustaining us. 
It is a memorial day. It is meant to fix our attention away from the glory that we might fool ourselves that we possess and onto the God who did all of this for us. He gives us the ability to go on, to survive, to provide, to gain wealth. So the Passover is a feast. It's a feast that reminded them that it is the Lord who delivered them and provided for them. Exodus 12, 14, this Passover day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it, keep it, religiously keep it as a feast to the Lord. It's good for you. Deuteronomy 9, 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The, and the blessings that we enjoy today is not because we are good not because of our righteousness, not because we go to church every Sunday, I pray that's why I got this blessing. No. Lord grants blessing and provision because He is the one who wants to confirm that He is promise keeper. We are dependent on His faithfulness to us. The Passover reminded the people that what we have and who we are today is because of who God is and what he has done. I recently also had a very big feast, a big celebration. I celebrated my wedding. <coughs> it was a joyous time. It was beautiful to finally get the journey of wedding planning over with and to see our friends and family partying and joyously celebrating with us. It was my prayer before that day that our wedding would be a celebration, not of how far we've come, not how sweet we were to each other, but a celebration of how far God has brought us. And to be honest, a man's pride, my pride, wants to be able to pay entirely for his wedding, his family, his house, etc. But the Lord had other plans for me. It was as if I received manna from heaven. It became very clear to me at the start, early on in the wedding planning, that my budget was not in a position of abundance, or I was not in a position of financial sufficiency to provide proudly for everything I would need for this celebration. We had to be humbled enough to rely on God's provision coming from other ways than our own hands. It was a tangible reminder like a manna from heaven, that it was not my strength, nor my power, nor my righteousness that gives me life, that gives me abundance. But it is because of God's faithfulness that I am able to eat and joyously celebrate life. I struggled to swallow this reality. I wanted to convince myself that I am a self-made person. I am a person who is able to provide for myself independently of my parents, of my family, of anyone. Pride. But the Lord had a spiritual preparation for me. It was God preparing my heart to learn that who I am, what I have today, is because of who he is and what he has done for me, including my limitations, so that I can see more clearly of his faithfulness and abundance. 
We are most sufficient in dependence. We have all had big achievements and attained honors in our lives. Whether it's gaining a degree, building your own house, getting married, having your first child. We'd be celebrating all of these milestones with feasts. As Chinese, we like to eat. But feasts ought to be brought into God's spiritual significance. We feast as God's people, not because we have something to be proud of, but because we have something to be thankful for. It is a memorial to the Lord. So we keep our feasts. Yes, by all means, Chinese, Filipinos, eat fiesta. But remember in your hearts why you have this abundance, why you get to eat the produce of your hands. It is not because your hands were skilled. It is because God is faithful to keep his covenant promise to us. As we look around our house, we look around the children that the Lord has blessed us with, the wedding celebrations, the possessions we've gained, cars, businesses. There's a tendency to inflate your pride. Look how far I've come. But God in this chapter reminds us, leads us to traditions like feast and the Passover, reminding us to, to keep it because it orients our hearts theologically. Be careful, church, lest you forget. Each month, the church celebrates the Lord's communion. This is not something new for us. You probably have memorized the song that we play. But there are many new generations among us. Your kids are worshiping beside you nowadays. Just like the Israelites were in Joshua. The Lord communion is a feast, a meal for God's people. We share not just for the sake of its free food, free juice, but it's a memorial day to the Lord. The wine representing the blood, the, bro the bread representing the body, reminding us of Christ on the cross. He provided for who we are today, a righteous and acceptable people in God's eyes by his blood. He provided what we have today, the right to enjoy worship, celebration as a spiritual family approaching the holy throne of God because he has bought that identity with his blood, with his body battered for us. So as you sip on the wine, as you sip on the, uh, eat, eat the bread, remember the significance of these things not because of our righteousness that we get to enjoy these things, but Christ's. I pray that these church traditions become more than physical things for you. May it prepare your heart as it has for ages ago for the Lord's people. How about in your life? Are there spiritual practices that you must start so that your heart will be better prepared to remind yourself that you have what you have, you are what you are today, not because of your skill, your education, your opportunity, but ultimately is because of who God is and what he has done for you.
What spiritual rituals must you employ for your family so that they might enjoy the abundance and the knowledge of God who loves them and who is committed to making himself known to them? How about for the workplace in your workday? What practices must you have so that you will be reminded that even the ability to achieve, to make money, to gain wealth is not because you are skilled or you are clocking in overtime hours or you have extra effort more than your seatmate, but it is because God who gives you the intellect, the skill, the ideas, the creativity to produce wealth. Church, in what ways must we prioritize these spiritual preparations just like God does? He leads us into these spiritual preparations lest we forget. Remember God's goodness and be careful not to let our natural pride fool us into thinking that we are God's. For our third and last point, we will see how God people are safest when they are surrendered. Church, our feelings of power and fulfillment are most apparent when we are in control of our plans. Our life is going exactly according to plan. We set goals, we set timelines, and everything is going smoothly. Ah, I am safe, I am stable. In fact, many of us see God as a God who desires to bless us in that way grant safety and blessing to the plans that we have formed for 2023. Lord, bless the plans we have for this year. May it be your will. Can I ask you, is it wrong to ask God to bless our plans? To keep them safe? As we start 2023, we probably have laid out all our plans. Financial, retirement, family, and for the last part of this chapter, we encounter Joshua about to enter into a big chapter and a big event in his life, bringing seemingly that same attitude. Lord, are you with me in this? Let's see how God meets him there. Let's see how God personally prepares the leader of his people. Joshua 5.13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? At this point, remember who Joshua was. He had been Moses' assistant throughout many years in the wilderness. He had experienced many hardships, heartaches along the journey. Life became about survival. It was difficult. It was tumultuous. It was hard on their feet and on their hearts. He had experienced death. A generation had been lost. He had experienced losses, things, tears. And finally, they were at the verge of arrival. He had faced so many things though, and just like many of us, life's trials taint us. They fatigue us. Pagod na tayo. So for the tired and the injured, every trial, every obstacle, everything we face, we come face to face with, we, it becomes a matter of, Lord, help me get past this. Will you, are you, are you, are you going to deliver me past this or is this my end? This is not wrong per se. 
but is a lacking a sense of awe, a sense of hope, a sense of eternal glory. But life and its difficulties tend to make us like that. We see in this passage Joshua being the same. He was so tired from a battle, a long journey, crossing Jordan, leading his people. He was merely excited to know if this warrior was with them or against them. Para sa akin ba to? Lord, nandito ka ba? Wala. Para sa amin ka ba? Or hindi? And just like us, we ask that with every trial we face, Lord, kaya ko ba to? Lalagpasan ba namin to? O ito na yung katapusan namin? Let's read on to see what happens next. The person said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. You see, Joshua was prepared to lead his own army into Canaan. He was preparing for the biggest battle, biggest moment and trial of his life. Let alone lead a whole other million people into victory. He was bracing for impact. All he was thinking about was Israel versus Canaan. So everything that came face to face with him, every warrior, he's asking Is this for us or against us? He was gathering strength and protection. He was preparing for battle. He was keeping it safe. But again, the Lord prepares his people differently. We read here in our passage, the commander replying to Joshua, Are you for us or against us? He says, Nope, neither, none of the above. He was not for the Israelites, nor was he for the Canaanites. He was of the Lord. What was the significance of this? You see, most of the time for us, we go through life and face so many challenges and injuries and trials and tragedies, sorrows and sadness, that it becomes about us. Life becomes about us. What's next for me? What can I do for my life so that I can continue on? How can be better, provide for my family, Escape this financial crisis. What can I do? What should I do? But to be able to be truly safe in this life, it is God who enters into our awareness and our attention, reminding us that it's not about you. It's not about your people, your family against that family. It's not about that business against this business. It's about my story. I am about neither. I am about God. The battle, the story is ultimately his. This whole thing, this whole life, this whole experience, our mere existence is centered around God and his battle, his conquest for his creation. The Bible stories we read, the whole world history is God's story. A story of God winning back his creation that was lost. The battle is ongoing. But then sometimes, okay, I've heard of that, but we're so fatigued from battle. We forget that we are merely authored into this grand story because we are so focused on the little battles that we are facing. 
To restore our hope, our vigor, and our worship in life, we must be reminded of His presence among us. That it, it is His battle and it is His victory. So we see how Joshua responded. When the person said, now I have come, Joshua immediately fell on his face and worshipped. Joshua says, what does my Lord say to his servants? He's saying, what orders do you have for me? And the commander says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. The commander was welcoming Joshua into his divine presence, his holy presence. So we see how God prepares his leaders, his people, to step into an unsafe, unknown future. He orients them to the Godward sense of what this whole thing is about. It's not about your financial crisis. It's not about your business. It's not about your family having food on the table. It's about me, my conquests, my story. And Joshua responded with a posture of worship. He knelt down, he put his face on the ground and says, what do you have to say to me? What commands? Anong sunod? I will obey. You see, at this point, he was the top leader. He was the father of the house. He was supposed to be the leader, decide what opportunities to say yes to, what opportunities to say no to, what battles to enter into, what preparations to do. But suddenly, the leader of your nation is down on the ground, face on the floor, submitting himself to someone else's lead. He recognized that he was safest in battle. His family, his nation was safest when he was following the whole nation, the whole world's God. Society today will tell you that in order to be stable and safe in life, you need to have this amount of money, this kind of job, this kind of house, this kind of career, these kinds of skills, these kinds of networks. So we are discipled in that way. We tend to filter life through, is this opportunity for me or against me? Good ba to para sa asawa ko? Good ba to para sa, sa anak ko? Good ba to para sa business ko? That's how we discern life. That's how we decide. What's next? What's, what's next for me? But in this passage, in this last part, we are reminded that God prepares his people for life and conquest and battle, not by preparing themselves and seeing what will be for them or against them, but by seeing life as an eternal story with a leader that is faithful and able to deliver us. Only we have to put ourselves at his feet saying, Lord, what do you have to say to me? We follow his lead. It is when we begin to center ourselves on the infinite worth of God, responding to opportunities according to what kind of God we have, and daily surrendering ourselves to his leadership, through his word, only then can we be successful, stable, and safe in life. And this, ultimately, is the story of the gospel. The world tells us that we must make ourselves strong, like our first point. But the gospel says we are never strong enough, nor good enough. We are weak, but in that weakness, we are made aware 
that the Lord's strength is sufficient for us. He is our strength, our rock, and our fortress. His word and his promises, his presence strengthens us in our weakness. Second point, the world will tell us that we have to be sufficient in ourselves. We have to be financially independent. We have to be emotionally independent so that we can live as sufficient and strong people. But the gospel says everything we gain is from God and by God and for God. Only then can we full, fully experience the sufficiency that we need in life. It is through Christ and his communion, his provision for us, his blood and his body poured out for us so that we can enjoy life to the full. Independence of that truth can we have life sufficient. Third point, safety. The, Lord will the world will tell us we are safest and most stable when everything is under our control, going according to plan. When we have filtered life through what's for us and what's against us. That's a good leader. As long as I do what is for me and st stay away from what is against me, I'll have a safe life. But the gospel says only when God is for us, when you are on his side, can nothing stand against you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Only when we surrender ourselves to be part of his leadership and his story will be, we have the victory that he promises. Joshua 5 reminds us how we can be strongest in weakness, how we can be sufficient in dependence to him, how we can be safest when we are surrendered to his leadership. The same God that committed to Abraham as a people is the same God that is committed to Joshua in that generation. And the same God that is committed to Joshua in that generation is the same God that is committed to us, his church, today. That is what Christ's coming shows us. The same God that passed over the sins of Israel in Egypt passes over our sins today through the blood of Christ. The Passover. The same God that leads them to victory in Canaan is the same God that will lead our people, our church to victory over sin, over death someday. And this is because of Christ. And on his return, we will fall down on our faces. And we will on that day, Lord, be standing on your holy ground. In the very presence of God, we will be on that day. And all of history will show us that he was never abandoned us. It was always his story and his people. It was about his love story of gaining his people back to him. So church, may Joshua 5 strengthen you. May you feel the sufficiency of Christ in dependence to him. And may you feel safe that you are in the leadership of God, even when it goes against the world's standards. Let us pray. The God of Abraham and of Joshua, you have reminded us that you are committed to us for you are a promise keeper. Lord, we are in the midst of enemies. We are in the midst of trials. And we are asking, is God with us here? Is God for us here? And yet in your word, you remind us of your promise and of your presence that those who are yours, Lord, can enjoy victory. 
So when we are weak, Lord, we are strong. When we are dependent, Lord, we are sufficient in you. And we are safest when we are surrendered to, to your leadership and your plans. Help us, Lord, to have this heart, to learn to celebrate traditions like circumcision and Passover. Similarly, those meanings need to orient our hearts and prepare us spiritually for the battles that we will face this 2023. Prepare our hearts as your church as we await your return and your coming. Keep us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A blessed Sunday to your church and see you next week.